Good morning, everybody. So glad to see all of you here. Thanks for coming this morning. Thankful to worship with all of you today. <clears throat> for several centuries, several, well, we know from at least about 500 A.D., uh, Christians have celebrated the month before Christmas as the season called Advent. And Advent means coming. And this Advent season gives Christians an opportunity to remember that, that just as we're waiting to celebrate the day of, of Christmas that's coming up later this month and eventually Jesus' return, uh, so also for thousands of years, God's people were waiting for the coming Christ to save them. And when Paul and Barnabas and John Mark uh, sent off, were sent off from Antioch, like we saw um, recently in the Gospel of Acts, they were, they were leaving to share the good news of Christ, of, of his birth, of his life and death and resurrection. And when they did this, they often preached this gospel to the Jews first. And one would expect potentially all of the Jews to immediately praise God when they heard about Jesus' coming. Um, and when they heard about his substitutionary death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, after all, the the uh, the Jews had received God's presence first in, in the most um, clear way, and they had received his law and his promises, and they'd seen him do countless miracles among them, and, and they'd even received the lineage through which the Christ would come. The Jews had been waiting for the coming Christ to save them. And because of this, when Paul preached the gospel to the Jews, he used their own scriptures to show them that Jesus was this Christ whom they'd been waiting for. And this morning we're going to look at one such sermon that, that Paul preached in a Jewish synagogue. And if Paul were here with us this morning, he might preach this very same sermon to us as we are celebrating the season of Advent. So if you have your Bible with you, you can turn with me to Acts chapter 13. And we'll start at verse 13 this morning. Before we read this, let's ask the Lord to continue to minister to us. Lord, this Advent season, uh, we just celebrate that you are Emmanuel. You are God with us. And you have come to save us, just like you promised. You died for our sin. You rose from the dead in victory, just as the scriptures foretold. You are the Savior. And we are just so thankful that you invite us into your salvation. Thank you. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for who you are for us right now as you rule over our universe, our world, our lives, as you intercede for us in heaven, and as you live in us and minister to us by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, uh, you've told us that you sanctify us by your truth and that your word is truth. And so as we open your word this morning, please sanctify us by your truth, God. Protect us from evil. Guard our hearts and our minds as we cast our cares upon you now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's take it a little bit at a time here. Acts 13, 13 to 14. It says this. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. 
But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Okay, it's a lot of peas, a lot of uh, funny words. I want to show this map again uh, so we can see what we're talking about. Um, I don't have my pointer. So uh, they were in Salamis, then they were in Paphos, right? And now they're going from Paphos, this island of Cyprus, Cyprus, up to Perga in Pamphylia. And then they are in Perga just a short amount of time. We don't know much about their time in Perga. It basically, what we know is that John Mark, uh, that was when he left Paul and Barnabas and returned home. And later we're going to read that Apostle Paul wasn't very happy about this. We don't know what happened between them, but for whatever reason, um, John Mark returned home. John Mark was Barnabas' cousin. And so he returned home, and Barnabas and Paul kept on going. Let me see that picture one more time. Um, they went from Perga up to Pisidian Antioch, which is a different town than the Antioch that sent them off, okay? What's interesting about this Pisidian Antioch is this is, this is where the Lord led uh, Paul and Barnabas to go to next is, you know, you don't see it on a map like that, but it was a 4,000-foot hike up in elevation. And so in, they're going up. They're going up into the mountains, and God has led them to this, this people that he wants uh, them to preach the gospel to. And... Um, and then verse 15 says this, that, that on the Sabbath day, they, sorry, in 14, they went to the synagogue there in, in uh, Antioch and Pisidia. And then verse 15 says, after the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Okay, so Paul's going to now take this opportunity to preach the gospel to the synagogue, to the people in the synagogue. And his sermon is basically going to divide nicely into three sections for us. This is a long piece of scripture we're going to read, so I want to tell you what we're going to read. First of all, Paul shows the Jews how God prepared them for the coming Savior. Second, God, or Paul shows the Jews how God provided them the Savior, Jesus, and then third, Paul shows the Jews that God now invites them to be saved by the Savior, Jesus. So we'll take that one section at a time. First, Paul um, shows the Jews how God had prepared them for the coming Savior. Let's read verses 16 to 25. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with uplifted arm he led them out of it. And for about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I, that I am? I am not he. 
No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So as Paul shows the Jews how God had been preparing them for thousands of years for the coming Savior, notice how he does this. He does this in a very God-centered way. Okay? Human history, he's saying, is not man-centered. It is God-centered. And so as our creator and as our author of our past and our present and our futures, we humans are created by God, we are sustained by God, and we exist for God. And so in this passage, Paul clearly describes God as the all-powerful active agent in history who has prepared the Jews and all of humanity for the coming of the Savior. So let's look again at the passage we just read, and I want you to see how God is the primary doer. God is the primary grace giver in human history. This is what he says. God chose the Jewish patriarchs. God made the Jews multiply greatly when they were in Egypt. God led them out of Egypt with his uplifted arm. God put up with them in the wilderness for 40 years. God destroyed the seven nations in the land of Canaan. God gave the land to the Israelites as their inheritance. God gave them the judges. God gave them the kings, first Saul and then David. God is the one who brought the promised Savior Jesus through David's offspring, just as he promised. And God is the one who sent John the Baptist to the Jews to proclaim a baptism of repentance, to prepare them for the coming of this awesome Christ, whose sandals even John the Baptist was unworthy to untie. And all this happened just as God had promised in his word. So which of these things did God's people do? None of them, okay? And that's why God is the subject of these sentences. And the people are the objects of the sentences. Now he may have used, and obviously did in, in certain cases, used the Jews to participate in making his will happen. But it was God who led them to do it. It was God who gave them the will to do it. And it was God who gave them the ability to do it. So even when the Jews didn't understand what God was doing, and even when they couldn't see how the purpose, uh, they couldn't see the purpose behind their sufferings, the purpose behind their, their waiting for the Savior, even when, when God rebuked them for the rebellion against him, God was faithful to them. Because he was faithful to his promises. And he was graciously writing a story for their ultimate good and for his ultimate glory. God is the author. And he had prepared them for the coming Savior. Next, uh, Paul explains to the Jews here in Pisidian Antioch how God had provided them the Savior in this God-man, Jesus Christ. Paul says in verses 26 to 31, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers... Because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem who are now his witnesses to the people. 
Okay, so, so here Paul is, you know, I read that, but Paul was probably a lot more excited when he read it, okay? Paul gets to the heart of the good news that he wants the Jews to know here, okay? Paul tries to help them see how blessed they are and have been, that the message of salvation in Jesus was sent to them first. Okay. But just like the scriptures foretold, the Jews and their rulers in Jerusalem did not recognize Jesus as the Savior. They did not see the grace of God in Jesus. They did not see the glory of God in Jesus. They did not see Jesus in Scripture. And instead, they fulfilled God's predestined plan to condemn Jesus. And, and it says that they tried Jesus in several different courts. Their judges could not find Jesus guilty of anything and certainly nothing deserving death. But the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, was afraid of making the Jews mad. And so he ordered Jesus to be executed by crucifixion. And then after his death, Jesus was laid in the tomb of a rich man, just like their own Jewish scriptures had prophesied in Psalm 22. And then Paul proclaims the most obvious way here that Jesus was so different than every other teacher or false prophet or, or self-proclaimed Messiah. In verse 30, what does Paul say happened? God the Father raised this Jesus from the dead, okay? Just as Jesus foretold. So the God of the Jews, their God, raised Jesus of Nazareth from the dead, and this is the connection he's making. Because Jesus, the one who is raised, is your God. He is the God of the Jews and of all people. And then he says, and for many days, Jesus appeared to his Galilean followers, uh, namely, his apostles, who then became his primary witnesses to the world. And God used these apostles to write the letters in our New Testament, which has been handed down to us through the centuries. And in their letters, the apostles proclaimed the good news, right, the gospel, um, that, that Jesus came, which is what we're celebrating at Christmas time, that he came, that he lived a life without sin, unlike us, that he died on the cross for our sin, which we couldn't do, and that he rose again in victory over death for his glory and to proclaim us justified and right with God. And that's what they preach in the New Testament, but get this. The apostles, this is not a message that was handed down to the apostles. This is a message the apostles saw with their own eyes. You get that? These were eyewitnesses to this great news for us. The apostles had walked with Jesus before his death and after his death. The apostles had talked to Jesus before his death and after his death. The apostles ate with Jesus before his death and after his death. The apostles touched Jesus with their own hands before his death and after his death. And this is what they say in the New, letter, in the New Testament letters. So, what does this mean for you and me about what we believe about the Bible and the New Testament specifically here? <clears throat> Well, it means this. You can deny the trustworthiness and authority of the New Testament if you want. But if you do so, know this, that you are denying hundreds of ancient prophecies fulfilled by Jesus. You are denying the very words that Jesus said are true. You are denying the words that God says he has breathed out through his Holy Spirit 
and you are denying the eyewitness testimonies of the apostles and hundreds of others who walked with and talked to and ate with and touched Jesus. You're denying that in favor of people who in the 21st century say it's not possible. Well, having shown the Jews now from their scriptures that they're reliable these are, and true, but showing them how God had prepared them for the Savior and how, how, how God had provided them the Savior, Jesus, Paul then invites them to be saved by the Savior. Verses 32 to 41 say, and we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I've begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. So as Paul now invites his listeners to embrace this gospel that he's preaching, he does so by, by doing this. He, he shows them that the resurrection of Jesus is not simply a, a historical event that they must believe in. But more than that, it is that, but he's saying that Christ's resurrection from the dead is essential for our salvation and it's essential for our present enjoyment of God. Note, look, look, notice how many times Paul repeats the reality of Jesus' resurrection in these verses as he explains the gospel to them. In verse 33, Paul says that God has fulfilled the gospel he promised to the ancient Jews by raising Jesus from the dead. In verse 34, Paul shows how God raised Jesus to be our eternal king. And in verses 35 to 37, Paul shows how through the resurrection of Jesus, God spared Jesus from experiencing bodily corruption, which sets apart Jesus from every other king who has ever lived. And so Paul is saying that the resurrection of Jesus is not something merely to believe in, but it is great news for God's people today. Okay? It is only a living resurrected Savior who can save you and me. Now, let's think about some potential opposition to this, what we're hearing, okay? What, first of all, what does it mean to be saved, right? It's worth talking about that. Being saved sounds so weird, it's so churchy, it's so awkwardly religious in our day and age to talk that way, right? Why do we even use words like being saved and receiving salvation? Well, we use this language because this is the language that God uses in his word. And we're not here 
to create new terms or to create new concepts. We're simply here to proclaim God's terms and God's con concepts, right? And, and that being said, uh, because there are some confusing words and terms, we want to do the best we can to explain the terms that God wants us to know. And this is why it's really important to read the Bible for all of us so that we can understand what God means and why we need him and who, who he is and what he's like. Okay, so, all right, I can, I can also hear people saying, okay, so being saved and resurrection and salvation are terms that God uses in his word. Why does that matter to me? These are just, you know, I've heard, I've talked to neighbors who've said, these are just really old concepts that were used by people who were much more primitive than us 2,000 years ago. <clears throat> well, we could make the argument real quickly that um, we're really not that much better off than people were 2,000 years ago, but we're not, I'm not gonna go there. What I would say is this. If that's what you're thinking, then you must stop and remember who you're talking about. God, the creator of the universe. So yes, for human beings, 2,000 years seems like a long time. But what is 2,000 years for a God who has existed farther back in time than our brains can fathom and who will exist farther forward in time than our brains can fathom and in dimensions that our brain cannot fathom? 2,000 years pass while God blinks his eyes. And there's a faulty way of thinking in our day that assumes that because a concept is old means that it probably isn't true. And that's ridiculous. That, that's a foolish thought that finite, limited, and arrogant humans have created. Jesus Christ says this, I am the same yesterday and today and forever. And Jesus' word, the Bible, is an eternal word. It is the same yesterday and today and forever. That is why ideas like salvation and resurrection, propitiation, though old concepts are just as relevant to us today as they were 2,000 years ago. Now why does it matter so much to Paul that we embrace, embrace this truth of a resurrected, living and reigning Jesus because only a resurrected, living and reigning Savior can save you in the way that you need to be saved most. In verses 38 to 39, Paul fleshes this out and he tells you about why you need this salvation that Jesus is offering to you. First, he says this, because only through this Savior Jesus is forgiveness of sins available. And second, because only by this Savior Jesus are people freed from everything from which the law of Moses could not free them. So let's take those one at a time. First, only through this Savior Jesus is, is forgiveness of sin available. So Paul's not talking about a, a temporary forgiveness of sin that comes and goes and must continually be re reapplied to a person. No, Paul is describing a forgiveness of sins that is once and for all time available in Jesus because of his awesome death and resurrection. And Paul's Jewish audience, when they heard this, would have been astounded by this concept. I mean, their Old Testament scriptures required them to sacrifice more and more animals every day to remain in covenant relationship with God. 
And, and God says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so Paul is now telling the Jews, you guys, we don't need to kill and sacrifice any more animals to maintain relationship with God because God sent his own perfect son, Jesus, to be killed for us, for all our sin, for all time, so that we can always be in friendship with God. Wow. That's an amazing, mind-blowing concept to them. And just like the Jews to whom Paul was preaching, God wants you to know this and me to know this. You need your sins to be forgiven if you want to be friends with a holy and awesome God. Jesus would not have come and would not have died for sin if your sin didn't need to be died for. But he came and he died for sin. And he suffered the eternal punishment that our, of our sins and that is waiting for you after this life if you don't turn to him. But God is so gracious and he's so merciful. He does this today. He offers to forgive you of all your wrongs. He offers to, to forgive you of those wicked things you've done. He offers to make you pure and to give you a new start. This is the gospel today. Believe in Jesus and receive total forgiveness. Clean slate in Jesus Christ. And in addition to forgiving our sins, Paul says that only Jesus can free you from everything that the law of Moses can't free you from. And what, so okay, so what can't the law of Moses free you from? Well, the law of Moses can't free you from your sin and guilt before God because what does the law of Moses do? It points out your sin and guilt before God, right? <clears throat> the Bible says all of us have gone astray. All of us have fallen short of God's glorious standard. Only our Jesus can free us from our sin and guilt before God because only Jesus is the perfect Lamb of God who is God and who came from God to take our, away our sins and to wash us white as snow. Only Jesus. But what else can't the law of Moses free us from? Well, the law of Moses can't free us from death because the wages of our sin is death. When you sin or you disobey God, you earn eternal death. Those are the wages that you earn. You separate yourself from God. You earn hell for yourself. That's why, what did we see in the Adam and Eve story, right? They sin, what happens? They're kicked out of the garden. They're separated from God, as well as all of their offspring. Well, since that's true, and since the law of Moses can't free us from eternal death and hell, well, it certainly can't free us from fear of death then. The law does not make me a less fearful person. If we're stubbornly refusing to submit to Jesus because we want to stay in our sin, then we should be afraid of death. You should be very afraid of death. You'd be a fool not to be afraid of death. But only our Savior Jesus can free us from eternal death and from hell and from fear of death. Because he became our sin on the cross. And when he rose in victory over death, then get this, uh, we, we sang this this morning. We who belong to him were united with him and raised with him in victory over death. Okay? And this is how the New Testament puts it, which we can't really fathom. We're mysteriously seated in the heavenly places right now. God's people are. 
And if that's true, which it is, then it means there is nothing to fear at the moment of death for those of us who belong to Jesus. The moment that our physical lives end on earth, our spirit will go home for the first time ever. We're going home. We're not home yet. We're going to go home to experience life with God face to face with all the freedom and abundance that God wants for us. That's what's coming. <laughs> well, what else can't the law of Moses save us from, free us from? And that's the word he used, free you from. It implies that you're tied to something, you're in bondage to something. Well, the law of Moses cannot free you from Satan. Your sin against God binds you to Satan. And Revelation chapter 20 says this. If you remain, in, I've been reading a lot of Revelation recently because well, I think I probably mentioned this. My cousin, well, my nephew Eli is going through this cancer, and it all of a sudden makes me really want Jesus to come back soon. And it makes me look forward to the day when all of this crud is going to be thrown in the pit of hell. <laughs> and so, so I've been reading Revelation more. And this is what Revelation 20 says: If you remain in partnership with Satan then when Jesus returns, Jesus will throw you into a lake of fire with Satan and his demons to be tormented forever. It's the exact language it uses. But today, Jesus offers to rescue you from the lake of fire. Okay? Today, Jesus offers to free you from partnership with Satan. When Jesus died on the cross and when he rose again, <clears throat> and on the cross, they, Satan and the world thought they were shaming God, but God was shaming them. He shamed Satan and all the demons in the spiritual world who have partnered themselves with Satan. And when Jesus died, he did what was necessary to free us from Satan. If we'll turn away from Satan and turn to Jesus. And God says that very soon Jesus is coming back and he uses this language in the New Testament. Jesus will crush Satan under our feet. What an interesting way to put that. Jesus is gonna crush Satan under the feet of his church. So who do you, so the question then is, who do you want to be in partnership with? We talked about this a few weeks ago. There aren't like three or four teams. There's two teams. There's the lying, deceiving, and condemned Satan team, and there's the truth-telling, grace-giving, saving, and victorious team of Jesus Christ. Trust in Jesus and be on his team. <laughs> That's what Jesus says. He loves you. <clears throat> and so what Paul does, he makes it real clear here. If you want to be on Jesus' team, he tells us real simply how to join Jesus' team. In verse 39, he says that forgiveness and freedom in Jesus Christ is for, quote, everyone who believes. Everyone who believes that they need Jesus to save them. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the one and only Savior who can save us. Everyone who resolves to turn from God, or turn from everything that God hates and to turn to God and to true life in Christ. <clears throat> Everyone whose trust and peace is in Jesus Christ. Everyone who believes Jesus Christ is all they ever need. Well, after Paul did this, we don't know if any of the Jews believed in Jesus that day. It doesn't say. But look at how they responded to the proclamation of the gospel. Verses 42 to 43 say this. <coughs> As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, 
Many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. So just like the Roman proconsul uh, Sergius Paulus, he was astonished by the gospel in the previous passage. These Jews now are astonished, and they're begging Paul and Barnabas, stay, please keep preaching this word to us. And Paul and Barnabas agreed to stay there, and many of these people followed them around. They soaked up everything that Paul and Barnabas were teaching about the gospel and about Jesus' teachings. And, and just like Jesus did, Paul and Barnabas welcomed them, and he urged them, continue in the grace of God available in Jesus Christ. Continue in this gospel. There is an astonishment that I see here that I want. An astonishment in the good news of Jesus. I pray that until the day we die, and then for all eternity after that, we would be astonished by the, the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And I want, I want the same awe and wonder and fear of our awesome God that I see in these passages, right? I want to be thankful every day for everything God has saved me from, and I want to be thankful for everything God has saved me to, to himself, to, to real peace, not something I'm trying to conjure up in my mind, to real safety in Jesus, to real future hope in Christ, to real reconciliation with my God, my high priest who beckons me to come into his throne room to receive grace and mercy in my time of need. Thank you, God, because I don't deserve it. None of us do. Our salvation in Jesus Christ is entirely a gift of God's grace from God, through God, and for the glory of God alone. And so as we continue through this Advent season, let's just remember and give thanks for everything that Paul reminds us of in this passage, that Jesus was our, our long-awaited Savior, Jesus was our substitute on the cross and, his, and in his resurrection from the dead. Jesus is our present help right now. He's our sovereign Lord who reigns in heaven. And Jesus is our future hope. And he is the eternal light whose glory we celebrate with every Advent candle that we light. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for this word, this great gospel of your grace. You're so gracious, Lord. Please turn us to you, turn our hearts to you, turn the hearts of our loved ones and our neighbors and those we come across who don't know you, turn their hearts to you. Thank you for your forgiveness, God, not just for our past sins, but for our present and future sins. May we not use our forgiveness and your grace as an excuse to continue in sin, but maybe the fuel that, maybe the fuel that, that drives us on to pursue holiness and repentance from sin for the glory of your name, God, and for our true enjoyment of you. We love you. We want to just celebrate and worship you well this Advent season. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.